recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Rontachu. Today is Friday, August 10th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Well, well, the website move is is completed. I still have a couple of technical problems and challenges. Uh, I have um that this actually my curse is is a jinx. It it's um something called NJinx N G I N X that um that Plesk has has been installing on all these new servers and, and I have to figure it out and shut it off in the meantime and that's caused me some technical problems. Some of my videos aren't streaming because of that. It, it took me um, just a few days to find out what the heck the problem was and, and why my old server configurations worked and why the new ones don't. So, so um, I have my technical challenges, and they'll be overcome. Prosync.org. Prosync.org got a sudden shutdown notice, an immediate shutdown notice. After um, a couple of weeks, he, he had a shutdown notice, and, and um, they were only complaining about a couple of his sites. Mike has um, seven or eight sites up on on the same account, including Zion Crime Factory and JesusWasNotAJew.com and 911MissingLinks.com, his his ProSync.org site, ProSync.tv, um, the Kosher Tax, maybe a couple others I'm forgetting about. We have a backup of ProSync.org, and we're going to try to get them up by the end of next week. It, it's going to take some time. Uh, I'm going to be away for a couple of days this week, and I won't be able to do technical work. That the um, the ProSync sites I pray will be up by the end of next week. That that that's um, what I'm hoping. That the um, technical difficulties at Christogenia really entail just some of our streaming. Some of our videos aren't playing because they're coming off a server that I have to um, I have to configure yet, and and haven't had the ability to do that. As soon as I get that server configured, my videos will work again. All of the podcasts, and, and they're the most popular content at Christogenia. Before I changed servers, Christogenia was serving about, my main site alone was serving about 46,000 podcasts a month. The Mindcom site and the Saxon Messenger site was serving another 10 to 12,000. So... They all work, and, and to me, that's the important thing, right? Praise Yahweh for that. And um, I'm happy about that, and I hope that it continues to grow. Tonight is Luke chapter 10, and, and this is the continuance of our presentation on the Gospel of Luke, which has been interrupted since we, we discussed chapter 9 on July 20th, three weeks ago. In the closing of Luke chapter 9, we saw the account of the transfiguration on the mount, where Christ was said to have appeared and conferred with two men. Those two men were fully esteemed by the apostles who witnessed it to have been Moses and Elijah. Christians must know and consider that if Yahweh our God, our Creator, does not transcend the physical world, and that if our God has no efficacy to act within his creation. And if there is not more to this creation than what we commonly perceive, including our own beings, then we have no hope in the world 
And it is inevitable that evil shall prevail. For we as a race and we as a society are currently headed straight for the pits of hell. In truth, there is more to the creation than what we perceive. And there is more to our being than this short life of flesh. In the end, the creator God shall not be mocked by the bastardization of his creation. Those of our Adamic race, those of us who love him, shall indeed overcome the world. Following the transfiguration, there is something that was not commented upon sufficiently when Luke chapter 9 was presented here several weeks ago. I'll touch on it tonight. In verse 51, we see that Christ was resolved to go into Jerusalem where it says, and it came to pass with the fulfillment of days of his being taken up that he had set firm his countenance for which to go into Jerusalem. We see immediately thereafter that Christ, having sent the apostles out into the various towns and villages along his route in order to announce his coming, that the people of the various villages of Samaria did not receive him, and Luke explains why, because his countenance was for going to Jerusalem, a Hebrew idiom, which means that he was resolved to go to Jerusalem. This is not a testimony against the people of those villages. Rather, it is a testimony of the power of God in daily life. His purpose is fulfilled in the world, regardless of the actions or intentions or emotions of man. Yet the apostles understood this rejection to be an affront on the part of the people of those villages. And there's an offense against God. We read in verse 54 of Luke chapter 9. But the students seeing it, Jacob and John said, Prince, do you wish that we should speak to cast down fire from heaven and destroy them? Of course, it was not the fault of the people that they did not receive him. For God had put it in their hearts that they would not receive him so that his purpose could be fulfilled. Often in Scripture, the facts concerning the true nature of events are withheld from man for the glory of God. Therefore, Luke records the response of Christ to that statement of the apostles in verses 55 and 56 of Luke chapter 9, where he says, But turning, he censured them and traveled to another village. We can only imagine how he censured them, right? But there is one more aspect to the words of James and John in Luke 9.54 that can be mentioned here. And that is that James and John fully believed that God was with them. They believed it with a childish exuberance. And therefore they had faith that they would indeed be able to do these wonderful things which the prophets of old had done in the name of Yahweh, which should remind us of John, the Gospel of John, one twelve, where it says, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name. At the end of Luke chapter 9, we see that Christ had encouraged certain men to abandon even their houses and their families 
in order to follow him. God was on the earth. Yeah, well, it, it would be meet to follow him and to seek that spiritual gift. Churches today abuse this passage in order to persuade men into abandoning their own families in order to follow them. Doing so, they seek to make themselves popes, imagining themselves to be replacements for God on earth. Christians must seek their Father in heaven and follow God rather than men. While we must put our love for God before our family, he in turn has commanded us to love our brethren. Therefore, even Paul advised at 1 Timothy 5.8, Now if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of his kin, he is denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. So that we have it. We don't abandon our families to follow some church or pastor or minister. Never. We love our families and honor our God. With this, we will begin Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Then after these things, the prince had appointed 72 others, and he sent them to each before his face into every city and place where he was about to go. Here we see that in addition to the original 12 apostles, Christ appointed 72 others. And each of these were indeed technically apostles, since the description of what they were appointed to do certainly fits the definition of the Greek word, apostolos. Luke chapter 9 records the sending by Christ of the 12 apostles into the various towns and villages along his route in order to announce his coming. That event is also recorded in Matthew chapter 10, and in Mark chapter 6. However, this event with the 72 others is only recorded by Luke. Note that many of the instructions which Joshua gave to the 12 are also given to the 72 if we compare Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapters 9 and 10. And therefore, there was no real difference at all in their commissions. A lot of people like to be locked into the idea that there were 12 apostles. There were always only 12 apostles. Nobody else could be an apostle because of the original 12 apostles. And, and that's just wrongheaded, right? It's silly. It really is silly. An apostle is simply somebody who's sent out with a message. An ambassador is the literal definition of the term, and that's how it's translated in the Christianian New Testament. It's an ambassador. Just as an aside, the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and Washingtonensis, along with the majority text in the King James Version, all those versions have 70 rather than 72, where there are more ancient papyri, P75, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Beze, and another 4th century codex known only as 0181, which all read 72. P45, which is another 3rd century papyri, reads 72 in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, where they're mentioned again. So we see, I just wanted to point out one of the discrepancies in the manuscripts. We have 70 in half of them, and 72 in the other half, and there's a million variations like that throughout the New Testament text, right? It's difficult to always determine which is the better reading. That's the way it is. 
one of the challenges facing translators, and one of the smaller ones. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. So we see 72 elders appointed. Well, the text says 70 men of the elders of Israel, but we have Moses and we have Aaron, right? So that kind of equals 72, I would think. The, um, the tradition of 70 is also what the Septuagint is. The word Septuagint reads 70, and the tradition is found even back as far as Josephus, the Judean historian, no, Josephus was not a Jew. He was a Judean historian. Josephus even admits or, or, or tells us, he relates, I should say, that the Septuagint was translated by 70 translators, I believe, if I remember correctly. And the name has been given to the text as long as the text is known. So we have a long tradition of, of that number, right? We see it in numbers. We see it in the Septuagint translation. And we see it here where Christ gives us 72, possibly, in the better manuscripts. Not that I'm really into numbers that much. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And he said to them, Great is the harvest, but those who work are few. Therefore ask the prince of the harvest, ask the prince of the harvest, that he would send workmen out for his harvest. Man does not choose who should do the work of God on earth but rather it is God who chooses men to do his work on earth. Man should only ask God, as Christ taught us to pray, right, that his will be done. Yahweh will raise up men to do his will. Verse 3, you go, behold, I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. In Acts chapter 20, in his warning to the assemblies of Asia as to the things which would occur after his departure, Paul makes an interesting correlation where he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So the men that arise from among us aren't necessarily grievous wolves, right? They're, they're just sheep gone bad. Our own people can certainly act like wolves when they forsake Yahweh our God. Speak of, speaking of Jerusalem, Yahweh says at Ezekiel 22:27, Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And yes, our own people do act like wolves. But Paul's distinction between sheep gone bad and, and grievous wolves in Acts chapter 20 is quite interesting. Of course, we know a sheep can't be a wolf, right? But a sheep can sure as hell act like one. Verse 4, 
Do not carry a bag, nor a wallet, nor sandals, and greet no one by the road. When Christ walked the earth, he instructed his apostles that they would have no need of anything. When he was taken from the earth, he foresaw their persecution, and he instructed them that they had better make provisions for themselves. Where in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 37, we see this. And he said to them, when I sent you, he's referring back to this event and to the same instructions he gave the 12 apostles in Luke chapter 9. And he said to them, when I sent you without purse and wallet and sandals, did you have need of anything? And they said, nothing. And then he said to them, but now he having a purse must take it and likewise a wallet. And he not having a sword must sell his garment and buy one. With his departure, he foresaw that we would have to defend our faith. Verse 5. And into whatever house you should enter, first you say, peace to this house. And if in it there should be a son of peace, we have to define that son of peace, your peace shall rest upon it. But if not, then upon you it shall rebound. Then in that house you stay, eating and drinking the things from them, for the workman is worthy of his wage. The things which we have, we have because God granted them to us. Some men work a lot, and they have very little. Other men, they work, and they seem to have great plenty even though they really don't work harder than a lot of those men that have very little. Do not think that you have success by your own hand. Your wealth is either a blessing or a trial from Yahweh, and your wealth can be a trial. Therefore, we should be good stewards of those things which God has given us and grant freely to our brethren whatever their needs require. When godly people appear on our doorstep, we should have no qualms about our using the things which he has given us for the benefit of our brethren. Hebrews chapter 13. Brotherly love must abide. That comes first. Do not be forgetful of hospitality, for in this, some being unaware, have been hospitable to messengers or to angels. Worthy is the workman. From 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. If we have sown the things of the Spirit in you, is it too great if we should reap your fleshly things? Yet we must bear in mind that there is no forced communion in Christianity. Those churches that demand tithes, that's not godly. There is no forced communion in Christianity. For all communion for Christians must be voluntary. And in that way, we could make sure that those who are godly and those who deserve to share in the fruits of our labels, labors are rewarded. And those who are ungodly are not rewarded. Paul explains of the collection which he took up for the Christians in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I quote, Now we make known to you, brethren, the favor of Yahweh which has been given in the assemblies of Macedonia. The people in Macedonia 
contributed greatly to Paul's collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Because with quite a test of tribulation, the abundance of their joy, and contrary to their copious poverty, the widow's two mites, right? They have advantage in the riches of their sincerity, because by ability I attest even beyond ability, now this is important, they are volunteers asking of us with much exhortation the favor and the fellowship of the service of that which is given for the saints. The Christians in Jerusalem were being persecuted. They couldn't work. They couldn't support themselves. Paul took up a collection for them. The Macedonians contributed greatly and voluntarily because it should always be voluntarily. Don't ever feel compelled by some church or some pastor that you must give a tithe because you don't have to give anything except to God. And your tithe could be in your daily life with your family, your kin, the poor people in your neighborhood, the poor people in your community. There's a million ways to give a tithe, right? There is also no forced socialism in Christianity. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. To proceed with Luke chapter 10, do not pass from house to house and into whatever city you go into and they receive you, you eat the things they offer to you. Concerning the admonition to eat and drink the things which one's host provides, which we see here. The son of peace, which one may expect to find in Judea at the time of Christ, we must bear in mind, is also a law keeper. If he wasn't a keeper of God's law, he would not have been a son of peace in the first place. Sons of peace in the eyes of Christ must have been those who keep the word and the law of God because the children of Israel can only truly have peace in Yahweh and in his word. Therefore, this passage, and I've seen this, I've seen people actually try to make this profession. This passage is not an excuse to flaunt the laws of God simply because those by whom we may desire to be entertained, may themselves flaunt the laws of God. If they flaunt the laws of God, they surely are not sons of peace. If one flaunts the laws of Yahweh our God, he is no son of peace, and we should probably not remain in his house. Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of Yahweh is against them who do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Proverbs chapter 3. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace, you want to be a son of peace, you keep the law, shall be added to thee. 
Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about my neck, thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This defines Christ. It defines his mission, his personality, his desires. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. He keeps peace by his law, his judgment, and his justice. Into whose ever house you go, if that man is a son of peace, we eat the things he sets before us because we expect that he would be keeping the laws of Yahweh our God. If he's not keeping those laws, he's not a son of peace. Christians are not bound to keep the law because they're not going to be judged by the law. And Paul explains this in Romans chapter 2 through 7. But Christians being Christians and loving God should voluntarily seek to keep his law. Luke 10, verse 9. And you cure those in it who are sick, and you say to them, the kingdom of Yahweh comes nigh upon you. Cure those who are sick. Again, from John 1, 12. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain, the power which the children of God would come to have. The King James translation of the verse is simply ridiculous. He doesn't give to anybody the power to become sons of God because we are sons of God. Deuteronomy 14.1, you are the children of Yahweh your God. Luke 3.38, Adam was the son of God. The children of Adam are the children of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Even your own poets, Paul talking to the Ionian Greeks, have said that you are his offspring. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain. The authority which Christ imparted on the apostles is what John is talking about in John 1.12. The Christogenian New Testament translation of that verse is consistent with the story of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven comes nigh upon you. This statement and others in the gospel refute the universalist interpretation of Luke 17.21. The universalist interpretation that the kingdom of heaven is somehow spiritual, it's somehow unseen, it's within anyone who chooses God, 
Well, at Luke 17:21, the words of Christ are better interpreted. The kingdom of heaven is among you. <laughs> Excuse me. If the apostles, to whom Christ spoke, believed that the kingdom of heaven was within them, they would not have had to ask him, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where they say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? If they thought that the kingdom of God was within them, then they would have understood that it was within them, and they would not have asked that question, and they would not have needed it to be restored to them. They did not understand the words of Christ in that manner. And so the way that the Judeo-Christian churches interpret Luke 17.21 is wrong. Luke 17.21 says that the kingdom of heaven is among you. The universalist perversions of Scripture always contain conflicts when they are actually compared to the entire Scripture. Here we see the kingdom of heaven comes nigh upon you. The kingdom of heaven is actually Christ, the rule of Christ on earth. When Christ rules on earth, and when his enemies are destroyed, we will have the kingdom of heaven. Christ walking on earth, being followed by his people and loved by his people, well, that's the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, And into whatever city you should enter, and they do not receive you, going out into its streets, you say, even the docity which cleaves to the feet we wipe off of us. But this you must know, that the kingdom of Yahweh approaches. I say to you that for those of Sodom, it shall be more bearable in that day than for this city. The Canaanites of Sodom cannot possibly arise for the judgment. According to Jude, the people of Sodom are already undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I'm sure it's not going to be interrupted. The statement should therefore be interpreted allegorically, that it is better off not to live at all than to face the wrath of Yahweh at the day of his vengeance for rejecting your God. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Because if there had taken place in Tyre and Sidon, the feats which took place among you, long ago they would have repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But for Tyre and Sidon, it shall be better in a judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, shall you be exalted into the heavens? Unto Hades, you shall descend. The word pale, which is long ago here, in reference to Tyre and Sidon, may have been written in antiquity. The word refers to the remote past at the time when the ancient children of Israel 
inhabited those cities. The children of Israel fully inhabited Tyre and Sidon, even though there were some Canaanites in Sidon, according to Joshua and Judges. For the entire time, from the conquest of the Hebrews under Joshua to the deportations of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And even afterwards, when Sidon had paid the Assyrians and the Babylonians tribute, and the island city of Tyre had paid the Assyrians and the Babylonians tribute, and later the Persians also, rather than be destroyed. Here it is evident that even the worst sinners of the ancient world shall not be punished as harshly as those who would reject Yahshua Christ, their Messiah. Yet here the judgment pronounced by Yahshua is directly upon the cities which rejected him, and not merely upon the people, although the people are part of the judgment. They're being upbraided. Therefore, since Christ said to these cities, unto Hades you shall be descend, if one wants to see what hell looks like, one only has to look as far as the decadent mixed-race cities of the Levant and Palestine today. That's what hell looks like. Now in this day, by bringing the Arab world into the streets of Christendom, we are all descending into hell together and doing it to ourselves. He hearing you hears me, and he rejecting you rejects me, and he rejecting me rejects he who has sent me. As the Apostle John said of the people of his time in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit. John's talking about embodied spirits. He's talking about people and their spiritual makeup, which comes from their DNA, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh, because many false prophets have gone out into this society. By this you know the spirit of Yahweh. Each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from of Yahweh. And each spirit which does not profess Yahweh, Yahshua is not from of Yahweh. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. John says plainly, that the Antichrist at his time is already now in society. The Antichrist, the mixed-race Canaanite Edomite Jew, would be who he's explaining in the first century. They were the ones who were denying the Christ. Furthermore, since the entire idea of a Messiah embodies only the promises of salvation for Israel, John can only be addressing Israelites. Verse 17. Then the 72 returned with great joy, saying, Prince, even the demons are subjected to us by your name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan, I beheld the adversary, falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. And no one shall by any means do you injustice. But in this you must not rejoice that spirits are subject to you, 
Rather rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. We shouldn't worry about the demons as long as we stand firm in Christ. Here the subject does not change throughout the dialogue. It's only three verses. The subject does not change throughout the dialogue. The concepts of demons, Satan, the fall of Satan, Satan meaning the adversary, the serpents, the scorpions, the serpents and scorpions, which are actually allegorically people, and all the power of the enemy. They're all related, and they're all tied together here by Yahshua Christ himself in a few short sentences. The demon spirits. Satan falling from heaven. The serpents. The race of vipers, the race of serpents. How many times did John the Baptist use that term? How many times did Christ use that term? Addressing his enemies. All the power of the enemy. They're all connected. And Yahshua Christ connects them here in three verses. Luke 10, 18, 19, and 20. Demon spirits, serpents, scorpions, Satan falling from heaven, and all the power of the enemies of God. They're all in that camp. They're all connected here by Christ himself. There is only one other place in Scripture which describes the fall of Satan, and that is the Revelation at chapter 12. There we find that the great dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan are all the same entity, that collection of angels, as they are called, angels which rebelled against Yahweh, and being cast out here on the earth, their place is no longer found in heaven. I don't care who wants to claim it is. Their place is no longer found in heaven. If the angels are connected to that serpent of old, their place is no longer found in heaven, period. That's what the scripture says. And that serpent of old was on the earth when Adam was created. That collection of angels which rebelled against Yahweh and being cast out here on the earth are certainly found here from the earliest times. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It knew good. It experienced good and rebelled against God and experienced evil. So we have that old serpent, a member of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is found here already in the creation of Adam. It was in the midst of the garden. And that old serpent seduced Eve and fathered Cain. Now many may protest that Adam fathered Cain. Yet such a notion is only found in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. And that verse is demonstrably corrupt. And that's attested to in sources such as the Interpreter's Bible. Volume 1, page 517, which says of a part of Genesis 4.1, quote, I have gotten a man from the Lord, unquote that the actual Hebrew is rather unintelligible and that the words are a gloss. The fact that there are descendants of Cain in Judea in the first century can be demonstrated 
from Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 52. We will discuss that next week. Where it is seen that those men contending with Christ were of the race which was responsible for the blood of all the prophets beginning with Abel. Well, only Cain could be held accountable for the blood of Abel. And so those people being addressed by Christ must have been of the race of Cain and not of the race of Seth. Before the Christian era, at least some of the Israelites of Judea either knew that Genesis 4-1 was corrupt and attempted to repair it, or they were actually aware of the version of Genesis 4-1 which was lost before either the Septuagint or the Masoretic text came along. From the earliest translations of Genesis 4-1 from the Hebrew, which are the Aramaic Targums, we find translations, or rather interpretations, the Targums are basically interpretations in nature, of the verse, Genesis 4-1, as follows. And I quote, And Adam knew his wife Eve, who was pregnant by the angel Samael, and she conceived and bare Cain. And he was like the heavenly beings, and not like earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. That's from the Targum of Jonathan. A work of admittedly dubious value in many respects. There's another Targum which says, And Adam knew his wife, Eve, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. That's the Palestinian Targum. What we see there is not canonical. What we see there is early attempts to reconcile Genesis chapter 4-1 with the rest of Scripture and to understand it in the light that it should be understood in. That's what we see there. The idea that Cain was fathered by the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is supported not only by the New Testament, it's supported in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, it's supported in the words of Christ at John chapter 8, verses 41 through 44, but it's also supported by many passages in the apocryphal literature, such as 4 Maccabees 18, 7 and 8 in the Septuagint along with several other passages in diverse writings. I'll quote 4 Maccabees, 18, verses 7 and 8. And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert or ravager of the plain, ravisher of the plain, injured me nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. The fourth book of Maccabees is certainly not a work of the Talmudic Jews. With this and other evidence from demonstrably Christian writings, such as the Protevangelion of James, canonical or not, it's demonstrably Christian, it is seen that the teaching concerning the seduction of Eve is certainly not a product of the Talmud. It's seen that Ted Wieland and other people that make that claim are liars, because 4 Maccabees 
is a Christian writing. And because the Protoevangelion of James is a Christian, they are not Talmudic writings. The Protoevangelion of James compares the birth of Christ and the circumstances with Joseph to the birth of Cain and the circumstances with Adam, where Joseph explains, or exclaims, I should say, is the history of Adam repeated in me because he found his wife with child by somebody else? Is the history of Adam repeated in me, Joseph, being portrayed as being upset because Mary was found with child and he didn't do it? Once we understand the key, well, once we understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, only then can we understand all of Scripture. In John chapter 8, Yahshua Christ told certain Judeans that they were of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Therefore, Cain also labeled a devil is directly connected to that Satan who fell, described in Revelation chapter 12. Just as Judas Iscariot, who was demonstrably an Edomite, was also called the devil by Christ. He was called the devil because he was an Edomite. Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? And Herod... Herod must have been the representative of that dragon which attempted to slay the Christ child, described in Revelation chapter 12. Herod was also of Edomite stock. Once Genesis chapters 3 and 4 are understood, a clear line can be drawn from the rebellious and corrupted so-called fallen angels down through the descendants of Cain to the Rephaim, to Canaan, through Esau, and down to the Edomite Jews of the time of Christ, and on to this very day. Now, it is my persuasion that the other races of humanoids on this planet, and all the corrupt and perverted races, the Arabs, the Mexicans, are all part of the same family tree. They can all be traced back to this same group of people. Many of them can be traced historically to the same group of people. These are collectively Satan. These are collectively the serpent race. These are collectively the Antichrist, which has always denounced and rejected Yahshua Christ, who is indeed the Hebrew Israelite Messiah. This statement from Christ here at Luke 10, verses 18 and 19, cements all of these scriptural, scriptural connections beyond doubt. Luke is the 2C line gospel, as well as the Christian identity gospel. 1021. At that hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I give praise to you, Father, Sovereign, or Lord, the word being curios, of the heaven and of the earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. 
Yeah, Father. Because such have had approval from you. The subject has not changed from that of the fall of Satan, the serpents, and the scorpions. And it is therefore made evident why these things are not taught in seminaries. Yahshua states clearly that these things have been hidden from the so-called wise and intelligent, but revealed to babes. The two C-line understanding of Scripture is, of all Christian biblical interpretations, that which is the most despised and ridiculed by the enemies of Christ, because it reveals those enemies for exactly who they are. One is either a part of the creation, or one is a part of the corruption. Among men, only the white Adamic race is explicitly claimed as having been created by Yahweh in Scripture. Every other race, and the Jews, and the Arabs, and all the bastards, they're all part of the corruption. None of them are part of the creation. I can say that with confidence, because the Apostle John tells us that we, the children of Israel, the children of Adam, are born of heaven, and all the others are born of the earth. They were created here, in the sins of the world. Little differences in the manuscripts make a large difference in our understanding, right? The 3rd century Papyrus P45, the Codices Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, are all missing. They all want the word holy in verse 21, where it says, at that hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. They all want that word holy. He rejoiced in the Spirit, right? I just thought I'd mention that. The word appears in some of the better manuscripts. The 3rd century papyrus P75. So the 3rd century papyri that we have are split on this word. And the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraim Siri. Since the word appears in the better manuscripts, it appears in the Christian New Testament. The word, and, and this is, uh, I find this interesting because of the use of the word, right? I'm into the use of words, right? The word ex homologeo, Strong's number 1843, is to give praise here. At that hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I give praise to you, Father, sovereign of the heaven and of the earth. That word ex homologeo, may also have been rendered confess, I confess to you, Father, or profess, I profess to you, Father. To profess God is to praise him, because by simply professing God, one gives God credit and the respect that he deserves. The profession also signifies agreement. You can't profess God properly without agreeing with God, because the word ex homologeo, literally means from or by agreeing. Homologeo means to speak 
the same as. You can't profess or praise God unless you agree with him. Agreeing with God means agreeing with the things that he has written. With the word of God. Verse 22. All things. have been given over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is if not the Father, and who the Father is if not the Son. And the Son shall reveal it to whom he should determine. If somebody's eyes aren't open, it's because the Son hasn't determined that their eyes should be opened. That's just the way it is. We, have, we all have family members that are blind. We all have loved ones that won't see this truth. It's not their fault. It's not our fault. We could try to open their eyes, and we have an obligation to try. It doesn't mean that that person is not a good person. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have bad blood or, or that they're wicked or evil or sinful, and we'll see that here. It simply means that God hasn't opened their eyes and wants them blind for a reason. That's just the way it is. I know it hurts. You could know all history. You could know the whole Bible. Sometimes I might pretend that I do. And when I present all history and all scripture to people and, and wonder how they don't see it when I think I've drawn a perfectly clear picture and they still don't see it. Well, I've done my job, but it's just not theirs because God hasn't opened their eyes yet. That's the way it is. But that doesn't mean we don't try. We have to try. You don't want to be the servant that hides his talent in the ground. You want to spend it and try to gain with it so that you could have your reward. But it's not your fault when you fail, so long as you've tried. That's the way it is. Right here we have it. We'll see it again in this chapter before it's over. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will declare thee, Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son. All things have been given over to me by my father. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Yeah, the uttermost parts of the earth and all of the nations belong to Christ and will belong to the children of Israel. The whole planet. There's not going to be any room for bastards. All those clowns listening to the universalists in Christian identity I'm sorry to tell you, there's no room for bastards at the culmination of the age. There's no room for you unless you're an Adamic man. Because the kingdom of heaven is going to encompass the earth. The kingdom of heaven. I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That doesn't exclude too much. There's no room for bastards at the return of Christ. There's no room for bastards 
There's no room for Kaffirs, Negroes, squat monsters, whatever you want to call all those bastards. There's no room for them. You're either part of the creation or you're part of the corruption. Only the Adamic man is part of the creation. Everything else is part of the corruption. That's heaven. Psalm 28, verse 8. Yahweh is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Yahweh consistently calls Israel his inheritance throughout Old Testament scripture. While it may be argued that the word can mean possession, when you only examine Strong's Concordance, Paul clearly understood the word to mean inheritance by his choice of Greek words when he translated this for his epistle to the Hebrews. By his use of the Greek word kleronomia, which means the named, the, the, the person named for that portion. It's the named receiver of the inheritance. Kleronomia, referring to the inheritance of Christ in places such as at Hebrews 1.4. Yahweh, coming as his own son, is the chief inheritor of his estate. However, all of the children of Yahweh are heirs of the kingdom through Christ. And Paul consistently uses the plural form of the word heir to describe the heritage of Israel as a whole. Quoting the second psalm, Paul wrote this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, where he says, Becoming so much better than the messengers, or the angels, he has inherited a name so much more distinguished beyond them. To which of the messengers did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have engendered you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Then again, when he introduces the firstborn, and the only way Christ could be the firstborn is to be God himself, into the inhabited world, he says, and all angels of God must worship him. All messengers of Yahweh must worship him. If a man claims to be a messenger of God, and he's not a Christian worshiping Christ, he's a liar, he's a devil, he's a demon, he's part of the corruption, he's an antichrist. There's no room for ecumenism in Christianity. There's no room for fellowship with squat monsters, with voodoo witch doctors, with Muslims, with Buddhists, with Shinto temple freaks, there's no room for any of that trash in Christianity. There's no room for Hindus in Christianity. There's no room for ecumenism in Christianity, period, ever. We only reach the Father through Christ, and Christ only came for the sheep. Yet Paul also explains that to all Israel belongs the inheritance. 
where he says, in Hebrews chapter 11, and for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that from death, resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, in other words, if you weren't a part of the first covenant, you're not a part of the new covenant, those having been invited, or those having been called the children of Israel, Jeremiah 31, 31, the day is coming when I make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Those having been invited would receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, which is the nations and the ends of the earth. For where there is a testament, it is necessary to endure the death of the testator. God had to die to leave that inheritance. God had to die to free the children of Israel from the law. God had to die so that Israel would not suffer the judgments of the law, which required death. A testament is certain in death, since never would it avail when the testator lives. Yahweh had to be his own heir. His own heir. I'm sorry, I always mispronounce that word. Yahshua Christ in order to assure for Israel the kingdom, to keep the promises made to the fathers, because Israel, in failing to destroy the ancient Canaanites, proved that they could not keep their inheritance for themselves. The final lesson is that man is incomplete without God. Man can't rule himself. Peter talks about the inheritance which is in Christ, using that same Greek word, kleronomia, which Paul used, at the opening of his first epistle. Blessed is Yahweh, even the father of our prince, Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above, we are born from above, into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead, for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us, who are being preserved for us who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. Yahshua Christ is the heir of all things. Indeed, in order to secure the inheritance for the children of Israel, the children who couldn't secure it for themselves. We have too much empathy. And turning towards the students, Luke 10, 23, privately he said, Blessed are those eyes seeing the things which you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings have desired to see the things which you see, and they saw not. And to hear the things which you see, hear, and they heard not. Isaiah chapter 52, Messianic Prophecy, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. For that 
which has not been told them, they shall see, and that which they had not heard, they shall consider. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer arose, making trial of him, saying, Teacher, what should I do that I shall inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read? And replying, he said, Love Yahweh your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your entire strength and with your whole mind. And he near to you is yourself. And he said to him, You reply correctly. Do this and you shall live. Let me say that there's a line in the Old Testament. I forget exactly where it is. It's, it's in, the, it's in the, um, the books of Moses. And it says, The man who does these things shall live in them, in the King James. And it would be better... It would be better translated, the man who does these things shall have life by them. In other words, if we keep the law, we will have life as a result of our keeping the law. That's why Christ says, you reply correctly, do this and you shall live. But he wishing to deem himself righteous said to Yahshua, who is he who is near to me or who is my neighbor? in the King James Version. And before proceeding to the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is going to take a while, right? We should discuss the word neighbor. The Greek word translated neighbor is usually from the adjective with the article, ponplacion, which literally means one who is near and nothing else. That's why I translate it as he near to you or he who is near to you, because that's literally what it means. And by itself, it really does not distinguish between nearness in relationship or nearness in geographical proximity. However, the Hebrew language does make that distinguishment. And so does the context of Scripture, where the word is often found. And I'm going to take an aside to discuss this. The nominative form of the Greek word plesios, which is both an adverb and a preposition, means near or close to. And itself, it's a derivative of the adverb pelis, which means near at hand or close by. Either word, pelis or plesios, used as a substantive, in other words, used as a, with the definite article as a proper noun, was used to denote one's neighbor. And there are many examples of this from secular writers who used either word. Yet in secular Greek, there are also other words used by contemporary authors and also in the New Testament, which are translated neighbor. Those words are gaiton. A gaiton is simply somebody of the same land. That's what a gaiton means. A neighbor because he happens to live in the same land from the word gase, which means land. The other word is a perioikos. A perioikos is someone who dwells around, someone who dwells in the area that you dwell in. Contrasted to gaiton, which definitely has a geographical meaning, and perioikos, which definitely has a meaning that, 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 that intones a nearness of location, Tone placion seems to 
seems to connote or, or denote a nearness in relationship rather than a nearness in location, where the other two words are much more fitting to describe that. While it can surely be demonstrated that in Palestine and throughout the Oikumene, throughout the Greco-Roman world, one's neighbor was expected to be somebody of one's own tribe. That this is true of the meaning of tone placion in the New Testament is also evident in other ways. Besides the use of gaitone or perioikos wherever it was appropriate. In Acts chapter 7, verse 27, an account of Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, one Israelite is referred to by that word, tomplacion, in relation to another Israelite, but certainly not in reference to the dead Egyptian, the Egyptian which Moses slew, and he used the word neighbor in the King James to describe the nearness of these two Israelites. Yet Moses could not have known that the men didn't live together. He could have only known that they had a tribal relationship. So we see that that word tone placion is really used to describe somebody with a tribal relationship rather than a nearness in geography. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Yahshua is credited with the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and that word is tone placion, and hate thine enemy. Now, what meaning would that saying have if one's enemy, as is often the case, lived in the house next door? It wouldn't have any meaning at all. It would be kind of silly. So it should be evident that that word tone placion, that word placius, describes one near to you, but not necessarily in geographic proximity, one near to you in kinship, one near to you in relationship, in tribal relations. And that's much more likely the case, the way the word is used throughout Scripture. Now, in the original Hebrew, the Hebrew found in the original text in Leviticus, in Leviticus 19.18, where the word neighbor appears. That word is the Strong's Hebrew word, 7453, and it's Rhea. And Rhea is a brother, a companion, a fellow, a friend, a husband, a lover, or a neighbor in the King James translations of the word in the Old Testament. So it should certainly be evident that the word placius being used to translate that from Hebrew into Greek simply is not one who lives nearby. It describes somebody who's near to you in relationship not in geography. The word neighbor actually, I believe, comes from the word nigh, which is near, and the word brother, a near brother. A near brother is really what a neighbor is. It's not the nigger that happened to buy the house next door. He cannot be your neighbor. That's a ridiculous idea. The root word of the word neighbor in the Old Testament. The root word of Rhea, Strong's number 7462, is described by Strong. It's defined by Strong as a verb, which means to tend a flock, to pasture it, to graze, and by extension, to associate with. 
So it seems to me that the word neighbor in its original Hebrew form can only be a fellow sheep. If one is a member of your flock, if he grazes with you, if he was raised up with you, he is a neighbor. If one is not of your flock, he cannot ever be a neighbor. A wolf who moves into the sheepfold can never be a sheep and therefore can never be a neighbor. A neighbor is a nigh brother, a near brother. Men do not gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. We cannot imagine Yahshua Christ to be insisting that a wolf can be a neighbor to a sheep. It doesn't work, asks the sheep, when the wolf gets hungry. Luke 10, verse 30. Retorting, Yahshua said, A certain man went down to Jericho from Jerusalem, and he encountered robbers. And stripping him and inflicting him with a beating, they departed, leaving him half dead. And there happened upon him some priest who was going down by that road. And seeing him, he passed by on the opposite side. And likewise also a Levite arriving at that place, coming and seeing him, he passed by on the opposite side. Then a certain Samaritan traveling came by him, and seeing him, he was deeply moved. And coming forth, he bound his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and putting him upon his own beast, brought him into an inn and took care of him. Then on the next day, paying, he had given two denarii to the innkeeper and said, You must care for him, and whatever you may spend in addition... I, upon my coming back, shall repay to you. Which of these three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which of these three is supposed by you to have been near to him who had fallen in with the robbers? And he said, He doing mercifully with him. Then Yahshua said to him, You must go and do likewise. First, first priest is not at all an indicator of race. I, I just it, it 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 really bristles me when universalists want to take the parable of the Good Samaritan and use it as a defense of universalism, because priest is not at all an indicator of race in first century Judea. The word priest that doesn't describe a race. That's not a racial term, right? Priest is only an indicator of status. Indeed, Christ consistently censured the priests who were not the true children of Abraham. Priest is an indicator of status. While Levi was a tribe, and the Levite was a member of that tribe, that term was also an indication of a certain status which members of that tribe were accustomed to. So the comparison here with the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan cannot be a comparison among the races. It can only be a comparison among people of various classes or various positions in life. The parable of the Good Samaritan can have nothing to do with race. Understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan requires some background 
on just who the Samaritans were and how they were viewed by the Judeans at the time and why Yahshua chose them for his illustration here. The Roman district of Samaria was roughly equivalent to the ancient lands of Ephraim and that portion of Manasseh which was west of the Jordan River. It is evident that while most of the Israelites were taken into Assyrian captivity, to later become known as the Cimmerians and Scythians and Sacae and Saxons, many were left behind purposely. 2 Kings chapter 25 verse 12 explains that there were people left behind in a land purposely. Many others managed to elude capture. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 verse 6 demonstrates that not all of the Israelites were captured, that many eluded capture. Later, the Assyrians moved. They took many of the people out of the land. They probably took most of the Israelites out of the land. They took tens of thousands of Israelites out of the land and hundreds of thousands. They took 200,000 people just from Judah, the Assyrians, from 46 fenced cities of Judah. They took 20,000 people just from the city of Samaria itself, not including the rest of Israel that they carted away. They took tens of thousands of people out of Israel. There's no doubt we have the evidence in ancient inscriptions. But many people were nevertheless, nevertheless left behind in the land. Later, the Assyrians moved foreign peoples into Samaria to resettle the land. And these people were people who were made subject from other lands which the Assyrians had also conquered. Now, while many of the tribal names of these people are obscure, and they're listed in 2 Kings chapter 17, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and in Ezra chapter 4. While many of the names, the tribal names of these people are obscure, knowing the regions which the Assyrians had conquered, there is little reason to doubt that these were white Adamic peoples from elsewhere in Mesopotamia. And certainly many of them were, such as the Elamites, who were Persians, who were mentioned in Ezra 4.9. The Assyrians had moved some Persians into ancient Israel to replace the Israelites that they took away. Yet the history of Samaria is very sketchy during this period. And there is not even an, ins- an assurance that the tribes brought in by the Assyrians had remained in Samaria, especially since the Persian period was much more forgiving to displaced peoples. And we see that just in the history of Judea, where Cyrus allowed whatever Judeans wanted to return to their homeland to return if they so desired. And that was Cyrus's general policy. There is no doubt, however, that the people of Judea from the earliest times despised the Samaritans. As it is evident in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and also in the New Testament in John chapter 4, and we'll discuss that, John 4, 9. And the feeling was evidently mutual. The Samaritans despised the Judeans, and we learn that from Josephus in Antiquities in books 11 and book 20. Yet it is also evident at the time of Christ 
that many of the people in Judea were not actually Israelites. Rather, they were Edomites, or they were other Canaanites. And that evidence is all throughout the New Testament. John 8, Romans 9, and in Josephus, Josephus Antiquities, Book 13. It's also evident that some of the Pharisees, some of the Samaritans, some of the Samaritans were truly Israelites, and we will demonstrate that tonight. While certain Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham, Yahshua Christ denied their claim. He denied it outright. When the Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham, Yahshua Christ, in John chapter 8, verses 33 through 44, tells them that they certainly were not the children of Abraham or at least not true children of Abraham. The record shows that many of these Pharisees were indeed the children of Esau. Esau, who took Canaanite wives, whose offspring are all illegitimate. Yet, even though Christ denied that the Pharisees were children of Abraham, even though he corrected them, yet when a certain Samaritan woman who voiced an expectation of Israel's coming Messiah. When she claimed to be a daughter of Jacob, Christ did not deny her claim. Rather, her claim was substantiated by the subsequent events described in John chapter 4, which we're going to read. It is obvious that first century Judeans, those who were Israelites, were making distinctions based on religious and political boundaries, much the same way that we do today. And they were ignoring the more important permanent bonds of kinship and race, just as many of us also do today. If you don't believe that, go to a bar and watch Olympic boxing on TV. You'll see a bar full of white guys rooting for a nigger with American flags on his boxer shorts when he's beating a white guy, when he's beating a white man from another country. Happens all the time. I've seen it all the time. It's absolutely disgusting. Just because he has a common flag, even though he's an alien race, and that's the way most people draw their distinctions. It was, it's like that in America today. It was like that in first century Palestine. The good Samaritan Christ had in mind was certainly a descendant of Adam and was very likely a lost Israelite. And that's evident not only from Christ's words, not only from the nature of the good Samaritan, it's evident from John chapter 4. We're going to see that the Samaritans, or at least many of the Samaritans, are indeed Israelites. John chapter 4, verse 4. And it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. So he comes to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the land which Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there was a well of Jacob's there. Then Yahshua, being tired from the journey, sat thusly by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Yahshua says to her, give me the drink. For his students had gone off to the city that they may buy food. Then the Samaritan woman says to him, you, being a Judean, how do you request from me, being a Samaritan woman, to drink? 
as Josephus also told us, the Judeans would not have any transactions or any communion with the Samaritans. They despise them. The woman doesn't understand how she, being a Samaritan, would be asked, and she knows right away that Christ is a Judean, probably from his dress, from his habits, from his customs, from, from, from his language, from his dialect. She doesn't understand how he asks her to drink. And she says, for the Judeans have no dealings with the Samaritans. Yahshua replied to her and said, If you knew the gift of Yahweh and who it is saying to you, give me the drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you living water. The woman says to him, Master, you do not even have a bucket and a well is deep. So from where do you have living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Our father Jacob. The Pharisees claimed to be sons of Abraham and Christ told them no. This woman claims to be a daughter of Jacob and Christ does not contest it. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and had drank from it himself, with his sons and his cattle? Yahshua responded and said to her, Each who is drinking from this water shall thirst again. But he who should drink from the water which I shall give to him shall not thirst for eternity, but the water which I shall give to him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman says to him, Master, give this water to me to drink. Give this water to me that I shall not thirst nor pass by here to draw. He says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman replied and said to him, I do not have a husband. Yahshua says to her, you have spoken well that I do not have a husband. If you have had five husbands, and now he whom you have is not your husband. By this you spoke the truth. The woman says to him, and she's obviously like the rest of us, she's a sinner. Master, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. That's an important statement because it shows that she's one of the Samaritans who lived around Mount Gerizim where a temple was built in the 3rd century B.C. The temple was later destroyed by the Judeans. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain, yet you say that in Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary to worship. That was the attitude of the Judeans that she's projecting onto Christ. Yahshua says to her, Believe me, woman, that the hour comes when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father, because Palestine has descended into the pits of hell. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, because salvation is from among the Judeans. But it has nothing to do with the Jews, right? But the hour comes and is now when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father also seeks such as those worshipping him. Yahweh is a spirit, and for those worshipping him, it is necessary to worship in spirit and truth. The woman says to him, now this is important, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. This woman is an Israelite. She's a daughter of Jacob. Christ does not deny that. 
she expects the Messiah. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Yahshua says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. And with this, his students had come, and they wondered that he had spoken with a woman. It wasn't really proper for a guy to speak with a woman alone in the first century, a woman that he didn't know. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Then the woman left her water and went off to the city and says to the man, come, see a man who has told me all things, whatever I had done. Could it be that he is the Christ? So the woman expected all these men to also be anticipating the Messiah and his coming. So they came out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his students asked him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. Then the students said to one another, has anyone brought for him to eat? Yahshua says to them, My food is that I shall do the will of he who has sent me, and that I shall finish his work. Do you not say that there is still four months and the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields, that they are already white for the harvest. He reaping receives a wage and gathers fruit for eternal life that he sowing and he reaping would rejoice together. For in this the word is true, that it is one who sows and another who reaps. I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others labored and you entered into their labor. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him through the word of the testimony of the woman, that he told me all things which I had done. Therefore, as the Samaritans came to him, having asked him to stay with them, then he stayed there for two days. And with many more, they believed through his word. And they said to the woman, that no longer do we believe because of your speech. For we ourselves have heard, and we know that he is truly the savior of the society. It is clear in history, especially in Josephus, that the Judeans despised the Samaritans, but that in spite of that, the Samaritans attempted to cling, or at least I should say, many Samaritans attempted to cling to the religion of Israel, even over many generations. They even once built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which the woman refers to when she says, our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. Here, these Samaritans are not despised by Christ, and they believe him, and he stayed with them for two days, and he taught them. And Christ does not deny the woman's claim to Israelite heritage. The Judeans of the return from Babylon were acting out of the need for national survival. But that does not mean that many of these Samaritans were not Israel. The Judeans, out of practical necessity, were reckoning Israel by recorded genealogy only. They had to preserve their kingdom. They cannot be blamed for that. 
the Israelites of Samaria had long ago lost the genealogical records when their cities were destroyed by the Assyrians. By the time that Judea was corrupted and began absorbing other peoples by about 130 B.C., the Samaritans were already their enemies, and they remained so. Therefore, even the Edomite Judeans, the Judeans looked down upon the Samaritans. They were kind of like the West Virginians of their time, right? Or if you're from Tennessee, they were like those people in Kentucky. The Judeans looked down upon the Samaritans and refused any communion with them. The Samaritan woman anticipated the coming of the Messiah, and by all measures, and in all her sin, she was nevertheless certainly an Israelite. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not about race. It cannot be about race, because in it, Christ compares a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan, yet priest was not a racial distinction. And neither was Samaritan a racial distinction. It was only a geographical distinction. Because over the 600 years before Christ, Samaria was inhabited by people from all different sorts of tribes, in addition to a remnant of ancient Israel. Most of these tribes, however, were indeed white Adamic peoples from various places in Mesopotamia. Therefore, this parable cannot be used to support universalism. This parable is about the status of people and not about their race. This parable is about the acceptance of the apparently impious and the wickedness of the supposedly pious. It is about judging our fellow white men by their fruits and not by their station in life. Luke 10, verse 38. Then in their traveling, he entered into a certain village. And some woman with the name Martha took him in. And there was a sister called Mariam, or Mary. And she was sitting by the feet of Yahshua, hearing his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And stopping, she said, Prince, is it not a care to you that my sister has left me alone to serve? Therefore speak to her in order that she may help me. And replying, the prince said to her, Martha, Martha, you have care for and are troubled concerning many things. But one thing is necessary, for Mary, or Mariam, has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The certain village is Bethany, which we learn from John chapter 11. Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus. Martha sought to serve those who were gathered. And that is a task which simply someone had to undertake. But Mary instead chose to sit and listen and learn from Christ. In this case, Mary seeking to be served was the better part than Martha's serving others. But Mary was seeking to be served by Christ, who came to serve us all. As Martha did, we all have a need to serve our kinsmen, 
For he who would be great among us would seek to serve the rest of us. And Martha certainly has her reward. However, we should also learn from Mary's example. And in turn, we should seek to learn from Christ, who is greater than us all. As Don Spears would say, we all need some Martha time and some Mary time. He's always upbraiding me for not having enough Mary time and taking too much Martha time. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I'll be here next Friday with Luke chapter 11. I will be here tomorrow with Sword Brethren. We're going to have a discussion on fascism. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Bless you all.